0: This is the Seminole War's authority. Hello and welcome. A soldier of the Second Seminole War would have led an austere life in remote outposts. Among the few pleasures in his life might have been playing with a deck of cards or dice and getting square meals from the army. What might have had the greatest impact on his morale, however, is the ability to receive and send mail to loved ones back home. If he was stationed at, say, Fort King, near present-day Ocala, he might have sent his personal mail through the nearby Seminole Agency post office. How did it travel from there? Turns out there was an intricate operation behind the three- or six-cent postage for a soldier's letter. In this episode, we'll find out just how so this was. Thomas Lara a director of the Florida Postal Society, collects postal history from throughout the state of Florida. Postal history collects the envelopes, the history of the envelopes used, and the stamps and markings placed on them. Tom is co-author of the book, Florida Postal History, 1763 to 1861. In researching that book, he discovered the Seminole Agency. Given its prominence in the era of Seminole removal, Tom decided to research this more in depth. He joined us now to tell us all about it. Tom Lira, welcome to the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. Tom, let's begin our discussion with the Seminole Agency. When was it formed and what was its purpose?
1: The Seminole Agency was formed when Colonel Gad Humphrey was appointed Florida Indian agent. And at that time in 1822, when he was appointed, he didn't have a home base. He was hopping around between Tampa Bay, Apalachicola River, St. John's River, dealing with Indian problems. And he decided that he really needed a home base because most of his problems were dealing with the Seminole Indians. So he looked for a place to, to build an agency house. He came upon a place near Silver Springs, and he built his house around 1825-ish. Well, that was the home of the Seminole Indian Agency, he called it. He was still Florida Indian agent, but his home base was the Seminole Agency. Why was there a need
0: for a Seminole Indian agency?
1: Well, the need for the agency was that he was dealing with so many issues with the Seminoles, he needed a place to have a meeting so they could come and be comfortable and he could help solve their problems. He worked with Deval, who was governor at that time.
0: And this grew out of the Treaty of Moultrie Creek. This treaty established the Seminole Agency and the Seminole Reservation in the central portion of the Florida Peninsula.
1: In 1823, the United States government and the Seminole Indians signed the Treaty of Moultrie Creek. And it said that there would be someone to assist them in their issues. Their issues would be handled by the Florida Indian agent, who at that time was Colonel Gad Humphreys. Some of the issues that they had was food and clothing and ammunition so that they could continue hunting. They owed them that stuff because the Indians, in turn, gave up some land. And as such, they were being paid by the federal government. The Seminole Agency was a wooden house with four large meeting rooms. It was two stories, uh, living quarters on the upper floors. The government sent supplies that he would hand out to the uh, the Seminole Indians in return for meeting the terms of the treaty. That was one of the main concerns of the agency.
0: Where did Humphreys locate the Seminole agency?
1: The agency building was located, the exact location I can't tell you, It it was a little bit south of Fort King where Fort King was built. They originally looked at the Silver Spring area. They built it somewhere in that area. That was the northern part of the reservation. The Seminole Reservation extended as far north as Gainesville at one time, and it went way down south of Tampa Bay. It was a very large reservation.
0: The agency was located near Fort King, but which came first, the agency or Fort King? The agency came
1: first. The agency was built around 1825. The fort was built in 1827. The fort was built because Governor Duvall advised the Secretary of War that a military post should be established there because of all the activities with the Seminole
0: Indians. With the Seminole Agency came the postal function. But when did the postal function begin?
1: Well, the postal function came later. The postal function came around 1828 because at that time, the main communication with the northern states and the governmental agencies was handled by the United States Post Office. And most of the population of Florida was in the Panhandle area, the Jacksonville, Tallahassee, Pensacola area. It didn't go that far south. When they built Fort Brook on Tampa Bay, they needed to have a way to communicate with Fort Brook and the other forts in the area. So Fort Brooke built a 105-mile road that went up to Fort King, present-day Ocala. It was an Indian trail that they just widened a bit so that more horses and mules could go on it, but it could also handle a wagon or two. It was one of those deals. It was a four-day trip to go from Tampa Bay to Fort King. What they did there, they were handling the mail. The mail went to Fort King, and then it went further north to Micanopy. The U.S. Postal Service had a post office stop there at Micanopy. It was the end of the line. What they did was they delivered their mail to the Seminole Agency, who then delivered the mail to Ficanope so that it could deliver it further north. Everything went through the Seminole Agency.
0: Was this before or after there was a post office around the Fort Brook area in Tampa Bay?
1: There wasn't a post office in Tampa Bay until late, oh eighteen twenty seven twenty eight 1827, ish All they did there was take in the mail, and then they delivered it to the Seminole Agency. The interesting thing about the Seminole Agency was it was classified by the post office as a private post office.
0: What did that mean? In
1: 1828, the Postmaster General authorized the establishment of the Seminole Agency as a private post office. It was run by the Army, hence the private post office. It wasn't a quote-unquote public post office, although it did handle mail from the public that was handed to them to deliver further north, but it was a private post office run by the Army in so much as they controlled the money. The money that the post office collected was then taken from the Seminole Agency and delivered to Tampa, where it was then distributed according to the post office contract. And the post office contract said, we can pay for expenses. You take your commission out of the proceeds of this. The remaining funds, the net proceeds, shall be deposited in a bank that the government has access to. And that's how come the Army did it.
0: Did soldiers get a free pass on postage or not?
1: Yes and no, okay? Inasmuch as the answer is yes, if the letter was addressed on public service or free, they didn't have to pay the postage. That meant that the letter was being mailed to a government official, whether it's a federal government official or a local government official, or mailed to another Ford. Those were free letters. If they wrote public service on the letter, that meant it traveled for free. It was delivered and handled for free. Otherwise, if they were writing to their relatives, friends up north, They had to pay the going rate for a letter, and the going rate for letters varied upon the weight of the letter and the distance of the letter. For instance, letters at that time were single sheets of paper that were folded and addressed on one side. So if it went to Tallahassee, which was about 250 miles away from the Seminole Agency, it was 18 and three-quarter cents. If it went to Washington, D.C., which was about 900 miles, it was 25 cents. If the letter was two sheets paper folded and then sealed, you had to double the rate, so it became thirty seven and a half cents and fifty cents to go to washington d c Seminole agency charged people for the post office to handle and deliver the mail. They paid that fee of which they then in turn delivered the funds to Tampa, who then distributed it according to the contract at that time, mail was delivered in the United States by ship, by horseback, by wagons, stagecoaches, or it was handled by individual postal carriers that literally threw the mail in a backpack, walked 20 miles, and delivered it to the next post office. In the Seminole Agency, they had an express rider similar to a pony express, except they were using mules back in that time, they had an express rider that went from Tampa to the Seminole Agency, handling all the mail that was carried to them. From the Seminole Agency, they then once again used horseback or mule and delivered it to Micanopy They delivered it to St. Augustine. They delivered it to Volusia. They delivered it to the various places where they were handling the
0: mail and where there were forts.
1: To and from was the same way. It was all done by horseback or mule.
0: How dangerous was this for the courier?
1: Throughout the nation, there was always postal robberies where delivery the Pony Express guy or the the mail express person, the stagecoach, was held up and the mail was stolen. It wasn't a daily occurrence. It wasn't a weekly occurrence. It was a half-stance occurrence. Whenever it happened, it happened. The soldiers would be armed, but then again, it was how many people were holding up the mail. In the case of the Seminole Agency, when the Indians attacked the rider, There was more than two or three Indians attacking him. There was a whole bunch of Indians attacking one person on horseback.
0: The soldiers did have right of passage through the Seminole Reservation on the Fort King Road to do things like deliver the mail. And if he was attacked by Seminole, that would have violated the treaty.
1: That would have violated the treaty. You're absolutely correct. Going across the nation, the Indians out west were attacking them. Outlaws were attacking them. But it's just like you see in the movies. There was a dangerous time back then.
0: Had he survived when Private Dalton, mail courier, would have heartily agreed.
1: Private Dalton was an express rider going from Tampa to the Seminole Agency in 1835. He was attacked by several Indians. The reason I believe he was attacked was because the Indians did it in response to an action that occurred when some of the soldiers were on patrol, and one of the farm owners said my cows were being stolen. And they found out that some Indians did it, and the soldiers shot the Indians. And then the Indians retaliated and went up against the express rider carrying the mail, and they killed them.
0: Was there a different route the Army could use to courier the mail, besides the dangerous Fort King Road?
1: Well, they couldn't go a different route. There was only one trail up there. I imagine they could take a different route on a different Indian trail, but this was the only developed road up from Tampa to Fort King. They could have had more people on patrol with them. They could have had a a patrol going with them up there, or they could extend the time periods that they delivered the mail. Instead of doing a, a weekly delivery, they could have done it every two weeks and had more people be with them. I don't know what actually happened after he was killed. You could only speculate what happened. The mail had to be carried. The mail had to be delivered. So they continued doing it. They probably took more precautions for safe delivery. The Army, as they increased the volume of traffic, they could have a mail carrier go with the squad, the troop, the regiment that was going north. They could do that.
0: Letters that Private Kinsley H. Dalton were carrying... Would have had a postmark of some sort, even if it was so-called free mail. He would have a postmark on it. There would be a, the postmark on it. Could have been
1: a hand stamp, which is a rubber stamp that, when ink, left an impression, or a manuscript on it. For the Seminole Agency, when Humphreys was postmaster, he had several people working with him because of the volume of mail that was being delivered. In uh, or handled by the agency, you know, my estimate is it was anywhere between 200 to 900 letters a year, collecting fees that the agency was handling. But don't forget, on top of the collecting fees, they had probably the same amount of mail that would traveled for free or on public service. So they were handling probably close to 2,000 letters a year. As such, they had to mark where the post office that handled that letter was. Humphreys had several manuscript postmarks that he used in the agency. He used the postmark called Seminole Agency FLOR for Florida, and he used that one in when the post office first opened. He had another postmark with uh, manuscript, which was Seminole Agency. He had another one that was an abbreviation, S-E-M and then A-G-Y or he had SEM agency. So it was really the person that was signing the letter had some form of seminal agency that was being written on the letter as a postmark.
0: Was Humphreys stamping all these letters by himself? Postmaster or his clerk.
1: Humphreys did not have a hand stamp. Humphreys had only manuscript postmarks. The hand stamp came in a later period in the 1830s when Humphreys was no longer postmaster and Erasmus Rogers was
0: postmaster. How vital was it to be able to move mail through these different stations throughout Florida? It's pretty important to have somebody
1: deliver the mail. It's the only type of communication between two locations. In the 1820s, Florida was still an undeveloped territory south of the Panhandle. There wasn't very many people living down in this neck of the woods. Mail was the only means of correspondence between what was going on up north and what was happening down in southern Florida. And don't forget, the post office also delivered newspapers. There was a local newspaper coming from up north. They were delivering that. And that's how information communication between the north and Florida happened by mail, mail
0: delivery. The Army did have a courier who would transfer letters and so forth between posts in Florida.
1: Yes. For nearby local stuff, Fort Drain was less than 20 miles from Fort King. They would just send a courier, and the courier would take the note from the fort to the other fort. It wouldn't go through the post office. Between fort to fort, they could have their own military courier that went along the way. If a letter was mailed from the Seminole Agency to McAnope, and there was mail designated for Fort Drain, they could stop there and hand the mail to him and then continue on to McAnopy and hand the rest of the mail to them for delivery up north.
0: For the record, who were the Seminole agents until the agency was shut down? Indian agents were appointed. Humphreys was
1: appointed by President Monroe. Then after Humphreys, John Fagan was appointed because, as you know, governmental appointees serve at the discretion of the president and the political party that was in power then. There was always issues on were the Indians being transported or immigrated to the Indian reservations in Oklahoma fast enough? Was the U.S. economy strong enough to support the promises that the government had to the Indians? And as uh, were they starving or were they well-fed? Did they have all the clothing they needed, the ammunition to continue hunting? There was all these other issues. Along with that, Were the annuities that were promised the Indians, were they being paid on a timely basis? And as such, there was discussions between the Indian agent and the governor, because the governor was the superintendent. He was the boss of the Indian agents. Did they get along? It doesn't make any difference who was in charge. Obviously, there was always some people that said, I'm not getting this done, and they'd go to the governor and they'd complain. Humphreys isn't acting fast enough. He's not solving this issue for me. So the governor had the issues of the public that he was always trying to solve. Humphreys had the issues of the Indians that he was trying to solve, and sometimes they didn't meet. The past didn't meet. So Humphreys was replaced and Fagan was put in in charge. But Fagan was pretty much an opportunist. He was only in as an Indian agent for a couple of years. Then it was learned that he wasn't distributing all the money to the Indians. He was keeping some of the money for himself. He was skimming off the top. So he was replaced. And then Wiley Thompson became the Indian agent in, I believe, 1834. Wiley Thompson was a general. Don't forget, Humphreys was a colonel. The Army thought that it was important to have these people working for them. And then there was
0: Erastus Rogers. What part did he play
1: in this? Erastus Rogers was a sutler, And a sutler was, in general terms, a sutler followed the army around and provided them supplies, clothing. He was a moving grocery store, clothing store for the army, where they could go and, and get the things for themselves. Erastus Rogers was in the Seminole Agency, where they he was managing all the supplies in the Seminole Agency. When Humphreys was retired, Rogers took over his position as postmaster. So he became postmaster and sutler at the Seminole Agency. He had two positions, and he had several clerks working for him. The postmaster was appointed by the Army. It was signed off by the United States Post Office Department. So the Army recommended that Rogers become postmaster, and the post office department accepted that and appointed him postmaster on August 17th, 1830. The Indian agents could come and go, but the postmaster was always at the Seminole agency.
0: Humphreys was dual-hatted, though, as both the Seminole agent and as the postmaster.
1: Why was that? He wore two hats at that time because they didn't have the uh, settler at the post by that time. The settler came in 1830 when Erasmus Rogers was there.
0: It appears Rogers' days were numbered after Osceola got into a tangle with the Indian agent, Wiley Thompson.
1: Well, Osceola and Thompson were having a meeting about the annuity. They were having a meeting about receiving supplies. They got into a big argument. Osceola said some things to Thompson and Thompson got mad about it. So Thompson put him in chains and put him in the brig in the jail. Some of the other chiefs like McEnope went and calmed Osceola down and Osceola said, "All right, I promise we're going to immigrate up north. Everything will be cool. Just let me out of jail. Thompson let him out of jail, leaving him out of jail. It was the right thing to do. At that time, Thompson thought it was the right thing to do because Thompson was pro-Indian, pro-Indian rights, and wanted to smooth things along. And he let him out of jail. but he didn't realize that Osceola had a, a temper. And as such, he had some bad feelings. Osceola said, I'm going to get back to catch you. And he did get back at him. It was after Christmas, December 1835, Thompson and... Lieutenant Smith, who was of the second Regiment artillery at Fort King, were having dinner with Erastus Rogers and a couple of his clerks. Osceola had a small group of Indians with him and they surrounded the Seminole Agency. Thompson and Smith walked out after dinner and were, you know, walking around the fort and they shot him. And then Osceola shot. Orassus Rogers and the two clerks that were having dinner in the agency. So there were five people killed in that action. Orassus Rogers was targeted because he was the sutler of the fort. And uh, as such, the sutler was supposed to be giving supplies that he wanted, and they weren't giving them all the supplies that, that the Indians wanted. Uh, one reason was because they didn't have them. And the second reason is, is that Erastus was probably told, don't give them everything. Osceola was mad at him and uh, shot him. They didn't see it coming because I believe in all the readings and all the research I did, I believe that they were shot through the windows. The Indians didn't rush inside and shoot him. They shot him through the windows. Several people escaped from the house. The women escaped from the house and ran to the fort, but the, uh, they were shot through the windows, I believe. They set it on fire, but they went inside and they scalped Erastus Rogers and they scalped Thompson and Smith.
0: For our interest, did they save the mail? A lot of things were saved. The settler supplies,
1: most of his supplies were in the fort proper, behind the gate in the fort proper. The Seminole Agency didn't have a lot of supplies there because Erastus was moving the supplies back and forth to the fort. The mail, if there was any mail there, it might have burnt, but I believe that also survived. Some of it survived. The mail moves. The mail moves on a weekly basis. And it was just after Christmas. I feel confident that there was a delivery right after Christmas going up to mickenopi saying what a great time they had at Christmas at the fort.
0: Did that attack mark the end of the Seminole Agency?
1: After the deaths of Indian agent Wiley Thompson and the postmaster Rastus Rogers, The Seminole agency no longer existed because there was no leader and there was no postmaster.
0: But separate from that, the agency was to end January 1st when all the Seminoles were supposed to be removed to Oklahoma.
1: They expected the Seminoles to go north and they wouldn't need an agency. But remember, the president had to appoint another Indian agent. Since the Indians were moving north to the reservations in Oklahoma, he felt it not necessary to have a Florida Indian agent. He had a Seminole Indian agent in Oklahoma, and he might have had a subdirector in Florida handling some of the issues in Florida, but he did not have a, quote, Indian agent in Florida. On the postmaster's side, remember the Army ran the post office. The Army signed the contract for the post office, even though erastus rogers was killed mail was still being delivered from tampa to micanope and fort king by the army express riders they were doing that they did that all the way through 1837 when the post office was formally closed by the post office department the express riders handled the mail they delivered the mail from tampa to fort king and the Seminole Agency at the Seminole Agency, they had a different express rider that took the mail to Mikinope or St. Augustine. They did east and they did north. They continued doing that. The army handled the post office contract and, as such, controlled how the mail was delivered and who delivered it. After the Seminole Agency was burned, along with I believe the uh, hand stamp that was there, they were not putting postmarks on it because they did not have a postmaster to put the marks on. As such, I have been unable to find any mail after 1835. I've been unable to find any indication of mail that had a postmark Seminole Agency after 1835. Now, there was a post office in Tampa, and Tampa could have been putting postmarks on the mail and giving it to the Army Express writer to deliver it north. So there could have been a Tampa postmark on it but there was no Seminole Agency postmark. If there was a postmark, it would have been handwritten. But however, there were no postmarks. The Army was still collecting the fees to mail letters that required postage. Remember, on service and free, all that traveled for free. The express writer still took those for free. But for private letters that required postage, they had to collect money. So the Army was collecting money, and as such, they would turn it in, They'd take their commission or whatever it was and their expenses, because remember, they had to buy horses and buy mules and feed and all that stuff. They had those expenses. They'd take their expenses out and the net proceeds they would deposit in a bank. The army was still doing that until 1837 when the post office was formally closed. Because records show in 1837 that the army or someone, I'm sure it was the army, Someone received a commission of $135, and those postal records are well known. The post office was paying for the the mail to be delivered up to 1837. Mail from Fort King to Tampa. How was mail from Fort King to Tampa handled? If it was a private letter, they had to put postage on it. Would a soldier write someone in Tampa a private letter? I don't know the answer to that question. Going south, I don't know the answer to the question. Going north? If he wrote a letter home, he would have to pay for it. I guess going south, he would also have to pay for it. Who did he pay? I would think at that time, the express writer took the payment and then turned it in to the proper authority at Fort Brooke, where he was delivering the mail to. And because he turned it in there, Fort Brooke would then take the letter and turn it in to the Tampa Post Office, who would then handle it. I really haven't looked for Tampa postmarks during that period, 1835 to 1837. I know that there were some. I can look right now. I know there were some, but I never looked for any specific postmarks. We do know that mail was continued to be sent and delivered. In my record, Tampa post office, I show, opened in 1835. It opened on September 15th, 1835. They did have manuscript postmarks on their letters from 1835 to actually 1845. So they were putting manuscript postmarks on their letters going north. There were probably some. Now, since we were talking about postmarks before, Erasmus Rogers also put some manuscript postmarks on his letters, but he also had the Seminole Agency hand stamp. And a hand stamp was, it was a rubber or a case of this one, I believe it was a wood block a carved wood block that they put on an ink pad and then stamp the impression on the envelope because they were handling so many letters back then. And if you're handling 900 letters backhand, you, you sort of get a tired writing Seminole Agency Florida on it, become right. a, a messy scribble. But the handstand, it's just you hit the ink pad, you hit the letter, you hit the ink pad, you hit the letter. Those letters were highly desired by postal history collectors because of the postmark. The postmark was just the postmark of the Seminole Agency. On the inside of the postmark, it was an oval postmark, and on the inside, they would write the month of the day on it. That would be handwritten in there. And then there was another postmark, which was used, and instead of writing the word free, like, a, remember, letters mailed by soldiers to other governmental agencies, forts, were traveled by free, they had a free hand stamp and they instead of write the word free, they just hand stamp it free. That was used in 1831 and 1832. Those are the only ones I've been able to find.
0: And somehow they were able to sort and make some sense out of all these letters and these postage and these stamps? During that time
1: period, they were required by the post office to document every letter that they handled. They had to report on a daily basis how many letters were free, how many letters were on public service, how much money they collected. Fraud was highly unlikely because of the number of people that managed the system. The clerks may be writing this and stamping this, but all the counts, all the money had to add up at the end of the day. They were very honest. I believe at that period of time, people didn't steal from the post office, mainly because, first of all, they knew it was a federal crime. and secondly. There was no gain for them. What were they going to do out in the on an agency property in the middle of nowhere? What were they going to do with the money? There wasn't a they could go to. Fort King and the little village around Fort King had 100 people, so it wasn't very big. The post office had requirements or duties of the postmaster, and part of his duties was to keep track of all the letters, all the correspondence that he handled because he got a commission for everything that he did and his commission was based upon how much money he collected. It was important for him to keep track of how much money he collected, and his compensation was based upon how much money he collected. So for the first $100, he got 30% of the funds. For the next $100, he got 25% of the funds. If he had more than $400 collected in one quarter, he got 20% 20% of the funds over $400 depending upon how much money he collected it was dependent upon how much his commission was the expenses were taken out of the total revenues collected by the postmaster if he collected $100 in mail they took expenses out let's say they took $30 out for expenses that left $70 then he received 30% of the $70 he received $21 and if you look at how much compensation he has, compensation was reported biannually, and it shows that in 1828, Gad Humphreys at one time received 100 bucks, 101 dollars. And then Erasus, following two years, he received 82 dollars, 61 dollars, 63 dollars. They might have been handling more letters, but the reason funds went down was because the expenses were higher because your commission was calculated after expenses.
0: Did they have a regular salary as well? No, they worked on a commission. The postmaster
1: worked on a commission. Wiley Thompson had a salary. I read somewhere his salary was a salary of $1,500 a year, but I'd have to go back and research that to tell you the exact amount. The postmaster worked on a commission and it was based upon the money that he collected. And he was very accurate on distances. He knew that Tallahassee was over a certain mileage. That fee was 18 and three-quarter cents. He couldn't make it 12 cents. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't change the rate structure because the rate structure was based upon mileage. It was based upon mileage and weight. A one-sheet letter was a certain rate. If it was a two-sheet letter, it was double the single-letter rate. Those were all fixed nationwide.
0: Did the price of an envelope affect the rate?
1: They weren't using envelopes then. They'd write the letter on one side of the paper, and then they'd fold it in a certain way that it ended up with to a rectangle because they sealed it with wax, or they just sealed it, or they just left it folded. They folded it into each other like Oregon. And then they'd write on that side. They put the address out there. That's a folded letter. So the back of the page had the address C on it. The other side of the page had the letter
0: In your report, you reference a postal route 2473. What was it, and how did it assist with the mail?
1: The post office had postal routes, and the postal routes were between one major town to another major town. So there was a postal route that they wanted a contract on from Jacksonville to Micanopy, and that was postal route 2473, and they put an abstract out requesting bids. Bids came in and they selected a person whose name was James Harris to pick up and deliver the mail from McAnopey and they deliver it to Jacksonville. with stops in between where they drop it off? Because mail was sorted. If you're in Jacksonville and you're sending stuff to McAnopey, but you're stopping at two or three towns to either change horses, change buggies, change wagons, whatever delivering the mail, change horses... You could drop off mail, so they had various bags that said, this gets dropped off at
0: Noonanville,
1: this gets dropped off at Baldwin, or somewhere along the route, they put out uh, various contracts on it. The Jacksonville to Mikonopi route was an 80-mile route, and it was there and back every two weeks. It did it, but then at the end of the route, they said you must go to the Seminole Agency which was another 26 miles that was added on to the contract. In 1835, the post office was delivering mail to the Seminole Agency and picking up mail at the Seminole Agency. They couldn't go to Fort King because it wasn't part of the contract. Now, did they go to Fort King? I don't know. I didn't have the contract. And besides, they were at war. The Second Seminole War was going on. If I had the contract, I said, there's no post office there. I'm not going there. So Fort King would have to deliver the mail up to McGonopy. It was important in as much as it it brought the mail to Jacksonville, which was a major transfer station. They could throw the mail on a boat. They could send it up to Savannah and then take it up and even throw it on. The railroads were starting to, to be developed in the area. It was a major distribution point. Jacksonville took all the mail from various locations in Florida. It took it from Tallahassee. It took it from Pensacola. It took it from St. Augustine. It took it from Tampa, Fort Brook. It took all the mail, sorted it, and distributed it accordingly. They had postal routes that went to Havana. They had postal routes that went down to the Keys. They had postal sea routes that went to St. Mark's from Tampa. Tampa to St. Mark's via the Cedar Keys. They go to St. Mark's, and then St. Mark's would put it either on the Tallahassee Railroad or they'd bring it up to Tallahassee. Tallahassee was a main stop. It was the state government, territorial government. There was a, another fee that may have been added on. It was a two cent fee handling by the ship captain. The ship captain would be responsible for the mail, and they normally charge two cents per letter fee. That was for private letters. For public service letters or, or free letters, they were delivered for free.
0: What are some curiosities that you noticed in your research? In a postal historian,
1: little things quirk each person's interest. In Marion County, there were several towns that we knew about that had post offices, but we didn't know where the post office was located. I'll give you, for instance, one town was called Number Two, and you probably never heard of Number Two as a post office. Well, Number Two, remember when it was a Zachary Taylor that divided up all the state of Florida in 20-mile sections, and there would be a fort in each 20-mile section? Number two was one of those sections, and number two was Fort Hook, 20 miles from Fort King. Number two, that was the name of the post office, number two. Why the post office called another post office number two, I have no idea, but it was probably written down somewhere that Fort Hook was number two instead of calling it Fort Hook. Another post office in Marion County was Suderville. Where was Suderville? Another one was Cottage Farms. So where was Cottage Farms? Cottage Farm is nowadays SPAR. Name just changed to SPAR. But you have to go back and search these records because none of these records were available. And working through the Marion County Geological Society, we determined where cottage farms were. We went back and looked at deed record books. We found out where Suderville was. We found all this stuff through a genealogical search. So postal history and genealogical searches go hand in hand.
0: What's your assessment of your experience researching this? It was fun because
1: I networked with a lot of agencies. Networking with these agencies, you get a lot of uh, really, really good information. For instance, I was able to go into a a certain number of archives. Like I was able to go into the National Archives, into their record groups, and look at the Bureau of Indian Affairs record groups, You could look at the Florida State Archives in Tallahassee. That is a very, very good archive to go search because these people there, the archivists, know what they're doing. They know exactly what you want, and they get it and help you find what you're looking for. And then there's a bunch of other people that share the information that you're looking for. So the Seminole War Foundation, you guys gave me a lot of good information that I didn't have. Looking at the archives in various auction houses that sell postal history and stamps. They open up their records and files. So I was able to get a lot of images. And when I started this search, I knew of six different letters that had postmarks on them. Four of them were the hand stamp postmarks, and then the other two were manuscript postmarks. After I started my research and, and diving into the archives and that, I'm up to 29 different letters. The postmarks, which is a huge find because we knew that the Seminole Agency was in the top 30 percent of all post offices in Florida during the time period it operated. There was a bunch of post offices in Florida and a bunch, I mean, in 1828, there were 30 post offices and the Seminole Agency ranked number seven. In 1835, there were 51 post offices. So it grew by 11 post offices and the Seminole Agency was number 11. It was in the top 70% of the mail went through the Seminole Agency. That's a lot of mail. That's a lot of funds that it collected. It was a very active post office. And that's what sort of excites you. When you find out this little post office did all that kind of work. And you verify it through finding the archives, going to the archives and finding covers. When you go to the archives, like I mainly look through election returns. And the election returns, as you get further into the late 40s, after it became a state and that, and you look at the election returns, things were sent in envelopes. Stamps first came out in 1845. You know that they were using envelopes then. And before 1845, they were using some envelopes, but most of them were still folded letters. If you look in the archives, the archives were only interested in saving the documents, not covers. So a lot of them were purged out of the archives. National Archives, same way, the East Florida Papers, which has thousands of documents of East Florida, ranging from 1760 to 1830 thousands of pages of documents. If you go through one microfilm reel, you may find three covers because it was a folded letter. All the rest are just the documents. Finding the documents with the covers on it is really a lot of fun. It's really interesting what you find. The settlers were selling envelopes during the Civil War. They would sell envelopes, the envelopes that had a cache on it that said New Hampshire 6th Regiment or something. So they were selling envelopes during the Civil War. But most of the soldier envelopes that you find nowadays are in private collections. Family keeps their letters. There are not very many of those in the archives because a lot of family documents aren't given to the archives except for the elected officials' archives in there. Then you'll find a lot of uh, envelopes and letters, folded letters.
0: It's all fascinating, but what did you find most interesting in your research? I think the
1: most interesting thing I discovered in this portion of my study was Being allowed to go into archives that I didn't know existed and go through their information, which then led me to another article that I'm working on now. I uh, found things in the archives that I've only read about where they only existed up north. And I'm finding that, hey, here's a Florida example. And I can give you a couple of examples back in the early 1800s Florida had three different currencies that it was operating as money that they were allowed to use there was the Spanish real there was the British three pence and there was the US pennies nickels and dimes so any one of those currencies you could pay to send a letter and the letter once again was determined by how far it went or how much it weighed so a normal letter would cost Six cents, but if you paid with a Spanish real, which was a real that was broken into eight pieces, you got a one-eighth piece was worth six and a quarter cents. The postmaster could not give change for six and a quarter. There wasn't a quarter cent rate anywhere, so he would write on the letter six and a quarter cents because a threepence was six and a quarter cents, and the Spanish real was six and a quarter cents that was a picayune was six and a quarter cents that's what it was if they paid with u.s currency he just wrote a six it was a six cents rate going through the archives we knew in florida that there was maybe 10 six and a quarter cent envelopes right now my number's is 58 59 just by going through that's a huge increase didn't know that many existed in florida once again, it was mileage, so it was under 30 miles, it was six and a quarter, or a six-cent rate. You'd see that it was paid with a Spanish real, six and a quarter, a picayune, or it was paid with a threepence, a three-penny rate.
0: Well, then what most surprised you in your research? surprised me was the fact
1: that how
0: friendly people were
1: and how open they were in providing you information and reviewing information that, that I had. That surprised me the most. The amount of time that one spends looking for a certain envelope or a certain marking, and then you're rewarded by finding it, is always a surprise because you don't expect to find it when you're looking for it. You're hoping you find it, and then you find it. You go to the Florida Historical Society archives in Coco and you look through their stuff, and you find lots of letters describing what's going on. And then all of a sudden, you turn to the back of one of them, and there's, there's the address. There's the markings you're looking for. That's what the surprise is. The people are they're keeping the letters, and they happen to have the postmarks. That's what you want. I've become known at the archives and trusted in the archives, and they're allowing me to research more things in the archives. They're more reactive to what I'm doing, because I give credit to everybody that provides me some information that I use in my article.
0: What are you most satisfied with?
1: The number of new covers that I found, I thought it was important to write up the article, but one could write an article that says, this is what I found. And you could list, which I've done as a census, list all the covers and who they went to and how much was paid for them and whether or not they were free or on public service. I have a census of all the covers, but then again, the census doesn't tell the story. You've got to get back into the story of the post office. And that's what I enjoy writing about. I do believe that postal history is an overlooked portion of, the, of all major groups because they're looking at the documents and what the documents say. They're not looking at the postal history of the document. And the postal history is important because it gives you more direction uh, to look for other things to, to reinforce your story. Genealogically speaking, the uh, postal history, when you're studying genealogy, you're looking at various families, all of a sudden you're finding more families because you're looking at the postal history of who sent what to whom. It's a very, very interesting.
0: As we close, what do you want to add, Tom? What
1: I'd like to add is that the Florida Postal History Society has an online presence. The online presence is fphsonline.com. And if one goes to that website, they have access to all the journals that have been written since the society's been formed. The research out there is a lot of my research, but you can also find all 29 Seminole Agency covers in a certain file. You can look at those files if you want, and it's all free. It's an open source website available to anybody that wants to look at it. If you want to join the society, that's a different thing. It's, It's only 15 bucks a year to join. The openness of it and the ability to go through all the files and records. So if you live in a town like, well, you could look at Bushnell. You could look at Adamsville. You could look at some of these small towns. There may be something written about it in the society journals. And you could go back and see all that stuff. Go look at the Christmas Post Office in Christmas, Florida. There are big articles written about that. A lot of stuff, it's a very active society. It's a very, very active society. If one of your readers or one of your listeners has access to a scanner, they could scan the envelope.
0: If someone listening to this podcast goes back to an old box in their attic and finds a letter with the back of it having an address and a Seminole Agency postmark on it, how can they get it to you?
1: With the Seminole Agency marking on it, they could send me a copy of it and I could tell them about it. I will tell them about it. So to answer your question, if one of your listeners has an envelope with a Seminole agency postmark on it, if they could scan it and send it to me, I would be more than happy to look at it and give them an answer telling them about their letter. Here's my email that they could send it to, atlarge 2 at f phsonline.com. Once again, all lowercase at large number two at fphsonline.com. The website on the Florida Postal History Society online.com.
0: Tom Lara, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority.
1: You're more than welcome.
0: This podcast is copyright 2023. The Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.